Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. It's good to see you. Let's open our copy of God's Word to John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is where we left off last week. We're in the middle of what many consider to be the greatest prayer ever prayed, Jesus' high priestly prayer. As you're finding that, two things. I just want to piggyback on what Robert said about encouraging you to come out tonight as we pick up our Sunday evening prayer, hymn, and short sermon series, uh, Sunday night service. We're going to start with an overlook of Hosea tonight, and for the next 12 weeks, we'll go Hosea through Malachi, often called the Minor Prophets. They're not minor because their message is minor, but they're called the Minor Prophets because they are shorter, and they're one of the more neglected portions of Scripture, and so I think it will be really helpful for you to get a better understanding of God's Word, and particularly the Old Testament, is if you come on these Sunday nights, and we're just going to take one prophet per Sunday night through the fall. Also, praise God, I'm happy to announce, you noticed that uh, Chris and Mark were, and Edith and Amy were leading us in worship tonight, and you, or this morning, and you may have been wondering where Paul was, and Paul and Becca Fincher gave birth to their fourth child, little Dorothy Jane. Praise God, so we are thrilled about that. That is their second daughter, fourth child. Can't wait to see little Dorothy Jane. Okay, before we get into this text, uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, hasn't, have you ever eavesdropped on a conversation? I think to some degree all of us have. And eavesdropping can kind of go one or two ways, especially if the conversation that you're eavesdropping on is about you. There's just something sort of powerful to the good or the bad if you're eavesdropping on a conversation. If you're hearing something maybe negative about yourself, then it's really, it's really painful, it's harmful. But if what you hear is positive, if it's good, if it's to your benefit, there's just some power in what you've heard. Well, in a sense, we're not eavesdropping on this conversation, this prayer between Jesus and the Father, because it's intended for us to hear. That's why the Holy Spirit caused John to write this down and record it so that we would have it. But in that same sense, we're, we're getting a sneak peek. We're, we're pulling back the curtain, so to speak, in this relationship between two persons of the Trinity, the Son and the Father, and the Son's prayer, the longest prayer in the Bible of Jesus, the high priestly prayer. And we're getting a snapshot. We're listening in. In a sense, we're eavesdropping on what Jesus is praying about us. Now, our text this morning, verses 6 through 19, is Jesus specifically praying for his disciples. But as we'll see as we get into next week, and we're going to make this application even today, is that what Jesus prays for his disciples, he mentions that he's actually praying for all believers in all ages. So everything that we read today is intended for us. Well, with that in view, let me pray before we get into God's word. We're going to read a little bit and stop, and I want to draw out three truths, three aspects of Jesus' prayer for us this morning. Lord, we need your word this morning. We need your Holy Spirit to attend to your word. We need to meet you. We need to see Jesus. We don't need um, 
cleverness or charisma. We need to meet the glory of the Son of God in the face of the Bible is illuminated to us by the Scriptures. We need to see Jesus. So to that end, Lord, I pray that you would give us attention, focus, grit. I pray that you would give me discipline to remove myself as much as possible from the equation so that what shines forth, what we're leaning on, what we're depending on, what we're seeing is Christ in the Word. Lord, to that end, take the truths of these words that Jesus is speaking to you and bring illumination, bring edification, bring transformation in the hearts of your people. And for any friends that are gathered here this morning that do not yet know Jesus, I pray that you would use this text, this portion of this prayer of Jesus and my words, pray that you'd use it to bring new life to any dead hearts that are in here this morning. Lord, all to your glory, all to your glory we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Picking up in verse 6, verses 1 through 5, Jesus essentially was praying for his glory, for his glory to be manifested in the world. And I think he was clearly speaking about the approaching cross, the crucifixion, the, and the resurrection and the ascension of, of Jesus that will happen literally in just hours from where we are in this section of John. But now we pick up in verse 6 where Jesus is turning his attention to the disciples. And he says... Let's listen to these words carefully. I have manifested your name. Again, this is a prayer from Jesus to the Father. I've manifested your name to the people whom you, have, you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Note that. Note what we know about the disciples, and note Jesus' description of them. They've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I, verse 9, am praying for them. It's a particular prayer. It's for these disciples. And ultimately, as we'll see, it's for us. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Notice the definitiveness of salvation. Notice the particular nature of the focus of Jesus' prayer for this group of people that the Father has given the Son, for they are yours, he says. Verse 10, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Okay, I want us to see, first of all, Jesus' prayer for his disciples is, first of all, a grace-filled prayer. It's a grace-filled prayer. Notice, notice how Jesus describes his disciples in this passage. He says in verse 6 that they have kept 
his word. In verse 7, he says that they now know everything that you've given me is from you. And in verse 8, they've come to know in truth that I came from you, and they've believed that you sent me. So this is a, a very positive description of a relatively ragtag group of 12 that really, in many ways, don't seem to have met the description that Jesus is giving them. I mean, what about all that we've read and what we will read shortly about the shortcomings of these disciples that Jesus is saying have kept his word? What about that time where in the middle of the Gospels, I think it's recorded in several of them, where James and John, uh, these two sons of thunder, just, uh, just give us a kind of picture of missing the point. And they come to Jesus and they say, okay, Jesus, man, things are rolling now. Which one of us is going to sit at your right hand in glory? And Jesus is like, oh, my goodness, no, you, you have totally missed the point. What about, what about just in another chapter that we will read about Peter's denial? He's scared to confess Jesus to a teenage girl seemingly at a campfire. What about just a chapter earlier in John chapter 16 where Jesus tells the disciples that, that after his crucifixion, they're going to scatter and abandon him? What about at the end of John where we read about the doubting of Thomas? And so many other situations in the Gospels where the disciples seem to miss the point. And yet, Jesus describes this group as keeping his word. What are we to make of this? I think we have three options. First, either Jesus is wrong. Secondly, either Jesus is out of touch. He's maybe just a little naive. Or thirdly, and this is the right answer, by the way, boys and girls. Jesus is right. Jesus is absolutely correct. But what does he mean when he says that they've kept his word? Well, it cannot speak of a certain level of spiritual maturity or sanctification. That's going to come later in the life of the disciples. But what I think is happening here when Jesus describes the disciples as keeping his word, as he's praying to the Father and describing this ragtag group of men. He's describing them as keeping his word. What I think Jesus is saying, he's giving us a picture of his gracious disposition towards his people. Jesus is looking at them out of time, in time, through the lens of the grace of the gospel. He knows that they believe in him, and ultimately they will believe in him in a saving sense. And we're in a kind of unique time in redemptive history. Jesus has not yet gone to the cross, and so we can't in a sense say that their sins have been atoned for on the cross in time. And, and then after Jesus' resurrection, we'll get to it later on in John, where Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit into these disciples. And many theologians through the centuries believe that it's at that moment that they are actually renewed, born again. But regardless of where we are in this unique time of redemptive history, Jesus is speaking knowing that these are his men, these are his people, and they're going to plant the early church. He's speaking of them through the redemptive, positive lens of the gospel. This reminds me of, uh, of, of Paul's description of Abraham in Romans. Remember four or five years ago when we were going through Romans chapter 4? Of course you do. And in Romans chapter 4, there's this, it's, it's a puzzling but beautiful description of Abraham by Paul in Romans chapter 4. 
And he says in Romans chapter 4, verses 19, 20, and 21, listen to the beginning of each of those verses, how Paul describes Abraham. He says of Abraham, he did not weaken in faith. Verse 19, verse 20, no unbelief made him waver. Verse 21, he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Okay, Paul, that's a wonderful description. But my question, if I'm just reading that on the surface, is, Paul, have you read Genesis? Well, of course Paul has read Genesis. And the story of Abraham that we read in Genesis is that it seems like Abraham did waver. It seems like his faith at times was weak. In fact, there's this whole scene where God has promised that he's going to give a son, an heir, through his wife Sarah, and time progresses, nothing seems to be happening, and it seems like Abraham and Sarah are weakening in their faith, and in fact, Sarah concocts a, 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 a scheme to bring a child through her mistress, Hagar, which Abraham goes along with, and it creates all sorts of trouble that we're still dealing with today. And we read back on this, and it seems like, oh my goodness, it seems like Abraham did kind of waver, but ultimately Abraham and Sarah come around, and we have this child of promise come through Sarah, Isaac. And what is Paul's retroactive perspective on Abraham? Is that he's God's man, and God is looking positively, redemptively, grace-filled on Abraham's faith, and he's saying, he's my man. It reminds me of... um, I think I've used this analogy before, and it reminds me of like a, a, a rehearsal dinner. You know, the speeches that are given by parents at rehearsal dinners? Now, I've had to do one of those, and when I got up uh, and I spoke about my son who was getting married, uh, and by the way, Jacob is preaching at Benning Hills Baptist Church this morning, and I got up very proudly a few years ago. And I spoke about my son. Now, I, I know a lot about my son. I lo- know a lot about all my children. I'm sure there's some things I don't know. But I know a lot about my children. And what father or what parent gets up at the rehearsal dinner, just full of pride and thankfulness, and says, let me tell you about this kid. He was a mess. Man, we barely made it through, but praise God, he's getting married, and he's, he's off my hands now. No, that's not, that's not how a good father views a son. Praise God, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And this sentiment is the sentiment of Jesus towards his disciples. It's the sentiment of the Holy Spirit that inspired Paul to write these words about Abraham. It's a gracious disposition. I mean, these disciples are much more closer to the spectrum of bad news bears than they are five-star recruits. But how does Jesus view them? He says that they kept his word. Jesus sees the mustard grain of faith that is deposited in them by the Father, and he views it positively, and he says, these are my people. These are my people. Here's just a truth I want us to take home as we look at this portion of the prayer, and it is this. It is that Jesus loves and thinks more highly of his people than we can ever imagine. Jesus loves and thinks more highly of you if you are in him than you can ever imagine. Jesus doesn't pray 
pessimistically. There's no moaning and groaning over the ragtag bunch that the Father has given him. It's no, oh my goodness, Lord, what have you, Peter, can you believe this guy? I mean, do the best that you can, Lord, with this guy. I've done my job, now it's yours, God. No, that's not how Jesus prays. And friends, as we reflect on ourselves, we think about pessimism and diminishment. And cynicism are ingrained into the spirit of our age. And this affects not only how we think about our world and how we think about God, but how we think about God thinks about us. Doubt and scorn sell. Criticism creates clicks on the internet. And we are all, to one degree or another, influenced by this cultural cauldron of negativity and perpetual pessimism. The good news of this passage in this prayer is that Jesus speaks a better word over his people. He has more reason and more authority to critique and criticize anyone. The psalmist says in Psalm 130, verse 2, If he were to mark our iniquities, who could stand? But yet, yet, Jesus' banner over us is love. (laughs) That's I just I want you to put yourself in the place of these ragtag disciples, and I want you to think about your own life, and I want you to think about if you're a Christian that you're in Christ, what does Jesus say about you? Oh man, this guy. I can't, I can't, I'm tired of putting up with him. No, he says, he has kept my word. What's an application to us? And I'm talking to believers here. I'm talking to believers. What do you think Jesus thinks of you? What do you think Jesus thinks of you? We'll get to this Old Testament minor prophet in a few weeks. Zephaniah, listen to these beautiful words from Zephaniah. This is the Lord speaking to Israel, and I think it's a kind of picture of how the Lord speaks to all of his people in Christ. And this is in the middle, this is in the middle of Israel's rebellion and disobedience and failures all throughout the Old Testament. And this is what the prophet Zephaniah says, God says to Israel through the prophet Zephaniah about these people who have disobeyed the Lord over and over and over again, but yet he is saved. He says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The Lord is singing over his people today. Even as he is correcting and chasing and disciplining us, he is simultaneously also loving us, loving us with an unimaginable love. Now, someone here today may believe that you're beyond grace, or maybe you believe uh, that you have done something that makes you unqualified for God's grace. And friends, that's a lie. Because the only qualification that any person ever brings to the Lord to make them a candidate for salvation is the sin which makes their salvation necessary. He is mighty to save. He delights in giving lavish grace to undeserving sinners. In fact, that's the story. That's the story of every every Christian who's ever come to faith in Jesus is lavish grace for undeserving sinners. Another application is how we view others. How we view others through this same lens. Jesus views them as keeping his word. And we should view one another through this beautiful, gracious disposition. 
followers of Jesus should see fellow Christians through the hope-filled, gracious lens of the gospel like Jesus. Now, of course, friends, this does not mean that we are unrealistically positive or myopic or that we shouldn't confront one another when necessary. We see passages like Matthew 18 where Jesus tells us directly how to deal with unrepentant sin in the church. Or in 1 Corinthians 5, we see Paul uh, upbraiding, really, and, and chastising the Corinthian church for just letting one another do whatever they want. We know that that's not what the application is here. We are, we are to love one another enough to, to actually care for one another and to at times confront one another. This isn't, this isn't calling for a kind of blind, good vibes, only self-affirmation society. That does no one, anyone, any, that does no one any good. But it is to say that I think we need to fight the spirit of our age to not always be pessimistic and suspicious and scornful and judgmental of our fellow believers. Because they, like us, in our imperfection, are people that Jesus describes as having kept his word. That's an amazing thought. That's an amazing thought. Well, let's keep going. Let's look at the second half of verse 11. So it's a grace-filled prayer. And he says, Picking up halfway through verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except a son of destruction, that's referring to Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Listen to verse 15 and 16 now. He says, I do not ask you to take, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So the second thing I want us to draw out of this prayer of Jesus to the Father is not only is it a grace-filled prayer, it's a keeping and a guarding prayer. Jesus is asking the Father to keep all of his people safe from what? From apostasy, not from the world, but from falling away. He asks the Father to keep them, to keep them in his name, to keep them loyal to him despite the circumstances for the purpose of being one, which we'll get into next week in the final part of this prayer. And Jesus himself is also, along with not only asking the Father to keep us, he is the active agent in our keeping. Look at verse 12. He says, when I was with them, I kept them in your name. I have guarded them. And so Jesus is praying for our keeping, and he's doing the keeping. Now, how do the Father and Son keep us? Well, friends, it's not something mysterious. I think it's just through the regular, ordinary means of grace that God has given us, through fellowship, through the Word of God, through the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, through things seen and unseen, through a thousand daily events and situations. Through, it's through a mysterious 
recipe in each of our lives, big moments, little moments, maybe a sermon that you hear there, a conversation that you hear there, a a rebuke from a friend, a, a song that you listen to, a prayer from a mother that you don't even know was prayed for you, a word here, an impression in our mind, just something, a sentence that we just happen to read on some random book, a warning here, a rebuke there, an encouragement from an old friend, a comfort, whatever it is, a sickness that pushes us to lean on God all All of it, he uses and he mixes it and he stirs it together in our lives. And it's this beautiful pot of preserving grace that he cooks for each one of our lives. And that's how the Lord keeps you and that's how he keeps me. And as a result, that's why Jesus says in John chapter 6, nothing can snatch you out of his hand. He has promised to finish the work that he has began in us. And so the Lord keeps us. If you are in Christ, no matter how fiercely the battle rages within you, and no matter how trying the circumstances are outside of you, He will keep you. Now what about this losing though, before we move on? What about this losing? He says there in verse 12, he says, I've guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. So what are we to make of Judas's losing is the word that Jesus uses there. Does that mean that a true believer who's been born again, kept by God, can somehow wrestle themselves out of God's saving, keeping, guarding grace and lose their salvation? I think the answer to that is no. Because if we take this verse in balance with what the rest of the Bible says about salvation, then I think that is an impossibility. We read in 1 Peter chapter 1 that our inheritance is imperishable, unfading, undefiled, kept in heaven for us. We read where John 6, Jesus says in John 6 that all that the Father has given me will come to me and I will raise them up on the last day. We read in John 10, I just quoted it, that nothing can snatch us from his hand. We read in Romans chapter 8 that all those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And all those whom he predestined, he also called. And all those whom he called, he also justified. And all those that he justified, he also glorified. There's an airtight, past tense nature to eternity past and eternity future for every Christian. We are safe in God's hand. But what are we to make of Judas's losing? How do we balance that with the, this, this, this mountain of evidence from the scriptures that says that a true Christian will endure to the end? Well, I think we see it even within the text. Notice that what it says about Jesus is losing. It's for the purpose of, at the end of verse 12, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So even Judas's walking away from the offer of grace is part of his eternal destiny that was to fulfill Scripture. We read about this. It's a, what, what Scripture is Jesus referring to when he says that? He's referring to Psalm 41, verse 9, where David says, and this is in David's life, but it's actually a picture of what's going to happen in Jesus. And that's what much of the Old Testament is. It's a picture that's pointing us. It's a shadow that's pointing us to the reality of Christ. And David says in Psalm 41, verse 9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. A shadow pointing to the betrayal of Judas. And it's fulfilled in his life. So even within this text, 
This is not that Judas was somehow a Christian and he lost his salvation, but he was fulfilling his ultimate destiny. And what's the point of this, though? Why, Why would God even raise up a Judas? What are we to make of this? What's the purpose of his life? Well, at the least... And this is, again, how God uses means. We can't just say, well, this person's a Christian, this person, so, you know, you're, you, you've confessed Christ and you can kind of do whatever you want. No, Judas is a warning to us that proximity to Jesus and spiritual things is no guarantee of endurance to the end. None of us can assume that just because we're hanging out with Christians or because we happen to be a member of a church, or because we happen to understand some doctrinal things, that that automatically means that we are a Christian. This text is meant to be part of the means by which God keeps his people to push on us, to cause us to consider our ways, and to examine our heart. It's not that a Christian can lose their salvation. The point is, is that it's possible for a person to be self-deceived, And God does not want us to be self-deceived. Just one final thing before we finish up the last three verses. Just I want you to notice something else important about this keeping. Jesus is praying for our keeping not from physical harm, but from apostasy. Notice what he says all the way at the beginning in in, in verse verse 12. He says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. In other words, I kept him faithful to you. And that's what he prays for his disciples in the rest of the prayer. And that's what he's praying for us. Not that we would be kept from the harm of this world or from even the persecution of this world, but that we would be kept from falling away. In fact, Jesus says that I'm praying, Lord, that you don't take these men out of the world, but that you keep them in the world, but keep them from falling away to the evil one. Not a removal from the hardship and brokenness of this life, but a leaving us in it to put on the display, the surpassing display of the worth of Christ. Here's just one little application uh, before we finish up the last three verses on that truth. Uh, I think in our culture today, because we're starting to face more persecution in a social sense, maybe than we ever have before in our country, that amongst faithful, Bible-believing, serious Christians, which I think are kind of the only type of Christians there really should be, there is an understandable agitation that we feel maybe more now than we have ever felt before against the current course of our culture. And And I understand that. And I think there's sort of two wrong reactions to that. Some Christians just sort of give up and hole up. You know, they just kind of just, I just want to retreat, and I don't want to be sent to the world, and that's not what Jesus is praying for here. And then some Christians, and I think, if I could just say this pastorally, I think this is actually more prevalent amongst older Christians and younger Christians, especially young men who are, they're, 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 they're full of vigor, and they want to fight, they want to stand up for what's right, and I appreciate that. And amongst older Christians who remember a time when things seemed to be better, those two groups seem to be more agitated and more prone to an unhealthy posture towards culture. 
I think older Christians look at the state of our culture, and I'm, again, I'm speaking stereotypically, so this doesn't necessarily apply to every older Christian. And by the way, I'm starting to become an older Christian, so I speak somewhat sympathetically to older Christians. Is that there can be kind of, man, like things aren't the way they used to be. It, it used to be better back in the good old days, whatever that means. And I don't really think there have been the good old days if we had to go back to the good old days, we have to go back to the beginning of Genesis chapter 3 before the fall. And then younger Christians, especially young men, young men who get certainty in finding good theology and the sovereignty of God, and they're a little bit like Peter in the garden. They want to cut off Malchus's ear. And they just want to fight, fight, fight. And they're agitated. And it leads them... And listen to me, I say this pastorally, especially many young men in this church who are starting to be taken captive by what I consider to be a kind of over-realized eschatology. In other words, an unrealistic and unbiblical expectation of God's ways of transforming our culture. And they get very agitated and they want to bring a kind of dominion, a kind of kingdom now sort of view of making everything conform to the law of God. And on some level, of course, we all want that. We all want that. But I think that is only ultimately promised us in heaven. And I think the witness of Scripture, especially chapters like Romans chapter 8, where, we're, where creation groans until our final redemption, where Peter says in 1 Peter 4 that don't be surprised at this fiery trial. I see the trajectory of Scripture saying that God's people should anticipate and not be surprised at the continual resistance and antagonism of our culture. And it will be like that to some degree until Jesus comes back. And when we have a kind of overrealized sense that we can somehow conform our culture or our country or our politics to obedience to Christ, I think it will frustrate us. It will cause us to be more antagonistic towards the culture. And I think, and here's the real problem, it will unwittingly transform our, 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 our goals. It will shift our goals from, from the great commission and the salvation of souls to the transformation of culture, which is ultimately not what the church is called to do. Yes, we want to see culture transformed, but as a consequence of the new birth, not as the goal. We could get everybody to, you know, follow laws that we think would be righteous, but it doesn't mean that hearts are transformed. And I think what Jesus is saying here, what he's praying for, is to give us a kind of endurance through the ages, whether the emperor is Nero or whether the emperor is some wicked despot in the Middle East, or in China, or in Russia, or Ukraine, or wherever, or some president that we don't agree with in the United States, Jesus is saying that I am leaving you here to be a witness of the kingdom that is coming. And I think that's the work of the church. So it is a saving it's a keeping, guarding prayer to make us witnesses as we wait for our blessed hope. And then finally, verses 17 through 19, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in 
truth. So the third point, quickly, that I want us to see in this prayer is that it is a saving, sanctifying, and sending prayer. Notice the three trajectories in these last three verses. Jesus wants his disciples to be sanctified. In other words, to be set apart, to make them holy. How does he do that? Through the Word, through your truth, and the Spirit working with the Word. That's the point of John chapter 14 and 16. And when he's talking about our Helper, the Holy Spirit, who will guide us into all truth, it will illuminate the Scriptures to the mind of the Christian. And we grow through the Word and the Spirit working through the Word to show us and lead us into the ways of Christ. So that's sanctification. And he says that I not only want them to be sanctified, but I want them to be sent into the world. And he says, as you've sent me, Father. In other words, as I've come to, from heaven to earth, so I send my people into the world. He wants us to be missionaries. He doesn't want us to build compounds out in the, you know, Montana and wait for Jesus to return. He wants us to go out into the world and, and to be Christians in the school place, in the workplace, in the battalions in the army, and in, and in the nurseries, and, and wherever you are sent. He wants you to go there. But notice what he says in verse 19. None of this can happen without the cross. Verse 19 really is essentially the gospel. And he says, for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. What does it mean when Jesus says, I consecrate myself? He's saying that I'm, I'm setting myself apart for what? For the cross that he's about to face in about 24 hours. I consecrate myself. In other words, this can't happen. My people can't be sanctified. They can't be sent unless I bear the wrath of God for their sins, unless I turn them from death to life, unless I make them new, unless salvation is open, unless the curtain is torn, unless, the, unless God can be reconciled to these men. This cannot happen. So before sanctification and before being sent, we must be reconciled to God through the consecration of the Son, which is His work on the cross. Friends, everything that I've said about Jesus keeping us and about Jesus' grace-filled prayer for us means nothing if we don't first and foremost understand that Jesus went to the cross and he consecrated himself. He bore the wrath of God for us. He bore the weight for our sins. He took the punishment of God and gave us his righteousness for all those that would trust in him. None of that means anything without Jesus' consecrating work on our behalf so that we can be sanctified. And friends, if you've never trusted in Jesus, that's, that's the point. You, you must trust in Jesus. Jesus went to the cross. This prayer is only effective for you. This prayer only means anything for anyone, only if we're trusting in what Jesus has done. His consecration, his crucifixion, his sacrifice on the cross. You must trust in that. Not in your upbringing, not in your knowledge, not in your relative righteousness compared to the person next to you, but in what Jesus has done. That's at the core of what it means to be a Christian. That's at the core of what it means to keep his word. To trust not in yourself, but in what Jesus has done on the cross to to reconcile you to a holy God. And then he sends us, and he sends us out to be people who aren't just sort of negative and pessimistic and 
critiquers of services and songs and sermons, and oh, wasn't that nice, or I wish you would have, you know, just, just, just Christians that are just sort of consumers and just sort of mildly angry all the time. But he sends us out into the world to be winsome, winsome witnesses of this glory. Now, friends, I conclude with this. We've eavesdropped under God's good intention. We've eavesdropped in this beautiful conversation. Jesus has intended for us to hear this. Now, how will this change us? How will this change us? That's the question before us now. How will we take this prayer from Jesus, this grace-filled prayer, this saving, keeping prayer, this sending, sanctifying, saving prayer, and what impact will it have on our lives? Let me pray that the Holy Spirit would help us answer that question as we go into this week. Lord, thank you for your words. Thank you for this prayer. Thank you for what Jesus prays. Thank you that Jesus looks at everyone who's in Christ in this room and he says about us a grace-filled word. Thank you that you keep us. Thank you that you pray for our sanctification. And thank you for sending us. Lord, may we wrestle with this. As we've eavesdropped on this beautiful prayer, may we wrestle with it and be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen.